0: Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 this morning. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. All right, so the sixth chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, and verses 1 through 4, and we're returning to the text for a second time this morning, under the title of Raising Children to Do Right, Raising Children to Do Right. And you know, parenting classes and parenting seminars are kind of a perennial favorite in the evangelical church. It's pretty much a staple for most. And I suspect that one of the reasons for that is the reality that um, children don't come home from the hospital with any instructions on the box. I can remember when our oldest was born and uh, we brought her home, and I remember turning her over and looking, you know, nothing. (laughs) Nothing. No instructions here at all. And so it can be challenging. It can be challenging. I think additionally, there's just the the reality of the societal breakdown that washes over us and with regard to families. And we've lost a fair amount of intergenerational wisdom. We just don't, generally speaking as a culture, have the advantages that um, were there several generations ago when homes were more intact and people lived closer and more intergenerationally with each other and so there was the, the opportunity to pass wisdom down in that way that for many is just not a reality for them and so that contributes as well but this section here in Ephesians I think contains some really important parenting information and it's not just for young moms and dads although it is that for sure but it's for all generations for all the generations, and the reason it's for all the generations is because we are inextricably connected to one another. We are, gen- we are generationally connected. We are in relationship intergenerationally. And that means that even simultaneously, we are often parents, children, and grandparents, and we're mixed into this, and, and the responsibilities and obligations and opportunities that, that come to us because of that uh, we can find great help here in this text. Now, this is, this is obviously not an exhaustive text on, on raising children, far from it. But there's some very important things here for us, and, and if we can hear them and receive them and seek to implement them as we walk by the Spirit, then we can make progress. We can make good progress in these things. So let's read the text, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6 where Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Last time, as we... Came to this text, we said we we're going to approach it on a threefold basis. So there we have a threefold approach that Paul gives here for raising children to do right in a world that does wrong. Raising children to do right in a world that does wrong. And last time we looked at just the first one, and it was this in verses one and two. The first part of this approach was to help them, help your children, to recognize their obligation. Help your children to recognize their obligation. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. We noted last time that the children that Paul refers to here are those who are still young enough to be in his home, be in the home of their fathers and under their father's authority and protection and provision, and yet old enough to hear Paul's admonition directly to them that they would live uh, and walk by the Spirit, because this still all falls under that rubric of back in 518, to be filled by the Spirit. This is another outgrowth of this. And so they are old enough and, um, and spiritually alert enough, or at least Paul's assuming this, for them to hear this command and obey it. Obey it. So they are not babies, <laughs> but the word's broad, it's a broad term for children. So they are being brought up. Notice verse four: brought up by their fathers. Specifically, as it's mentioned here. The idea that they're receiving his discipline, they're receiving his instruction. And we noted again here in this first approach, there's given a twofold command. It's two overlapping but not identical commands. The first was this: to obey. It was the command to obey. Simply, verse one: children, obey your parents where this is right. Upakuo was the, the Greek verb there. It, it means to, to do what you're told. And that's just fundamentally what it means, to do what you're told. The children are to be to do what they're told without qualification, without limitation. And we explored that last week, some of the applications of that. And the reason that Paul gives to do it, notice, is that it is right. Do it because it is right. It is right in the sight of God. It is right in the sight of God. Children, obey your parents without qualification, without limitation, because it is right. The idea that obedience to parents is is very much woven into the law of Moses, and it expresses the mind of God. And because it expresses the mind of God, it is right, the chaos, right or righteous. In other words, it pleases God. This pleases God. Children, you want to know how to please God Obey your parents. It's really simple. It's really simple. In Colossians chapter three and verse twenty, that sister epistle, Paul explains it there. He says, "Children, be obedient to your parents in all things." So the same idea, obedience, all things, no qualifications. And then he says, "For this is well pleasing to God." So here he says it's right. Here you know, in Colossians he says well pleasing to God. Kind of scoops up the idea. Obey your parents. That's the first command. The second command is to honor them. It's to honor them. And we see that in verse 2, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And we noted again last time that the command to honor your parents incorporates for those children who are home the command to obey. In other words, you honor through obedience. Honor your parents. If you're at home, if you're under their authority, you're under their protection, under their provision, obey them. And by obeying them, you will honor them. And that is pleasing to God. But eventually, in the vast majority of cases, a man leaves his father and his mother, right? And he is joined to his wife, and they become one flesh. In other words, a new family unit is created. And in that case, the command to obey, that duty to obey transitions from the childhood expression of honor, which is obedience, and it gives way to the more mature obligation to honor, which is what lasts a lifetime. So to honor your father and mother is never time-limited. Its expression may change with circumstance, but the reality of the command to honor mom and dad, your mother and father, is a requirement for a believer that lasts a lifetime. It lasts a lifetime. And this commandment, Paul notes, contains a promise. You see it in verse 2, which is the first commandment with a promise. And the promise that it contains is for a long and prosperous life for those who obey. A long and prosperous life. So, our first approach here to raising children to do right in a world that does wrong is to teach them to do right things, to obey and to honor. Second, Second, is to encourage them to see the connection. Encourage them to see the connection, verse 3. So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. We need to help our children to see this connection that Paul is making. Now, this original sixth commandment to Israel Uh, was that by honoring their parents, the children of the covenant would enjoy the benefits of the covenant, which was a long and prosperous um, living or uh, or life in the promised land. For example, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 16, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged and that you may, and that it may go well with you on the land which the lord your god gives you now this deuteronomy is given by moses there uh, to the on the plains of moab to the east of the jordan river when they're about ready to enter into the land so it's the second giving of the law And so here he gives again the sixth commandment, and he says, you are to honor your father and mother, and as you do that, you as children will be partakers of the covenant and receive the blessings of the covenant. We were to have the time, we would go to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, so you can do it on your own, but if you would go to chapters 27 and 28... You'll remember there where the blessings and curses of the covenant are laid out. Remember, they cut the nation in half, six tribes, six tribes. They climb up on the two mountains, Ebal and, and Gerizim, and they yell back and forth to each other. It's kind of like a, a gigantic football crowd, you know? And uh, they they call out the, the, the cur- well, first the blessings of obedience and then the cursings of disobedience. And, it's, and that whole um, ceremony, ritual, was designed to enforce this reality. There is tremendous blessing associated with obedience to God. And that principle, I think we can just summarize it like this. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings cursing. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings cursing. And that reality was what underlines the book of Proverbs. As you work through the book of Proverbs, that's what's running underneath the surface there as well. So, Moses' direct words to the nation of Israel. But why did Paul include this promise in a letter written to Gentiles? Why didn't he cut it off with just saying, honor your father and mother? Why does he include, this is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth? Why does he do that? He's writing to Gentiles. They are not the recipients of, of God's covenant with the nation of Israel. So so what's going on here? Well, some commentators uh, try to answer this question by spiritualizing Paul's words as a reference to eternal life. And what they say is that what Paul is is, is bringing to, to light here for the Gentile believers in Ephesus, is that as you uh, honor your mother and father, it will you will be blessed with eternal life. It will be an outworking expression of your faith, the faith which will bless you with eternal life. But I don't think it works. I don't think it works. I think if, if Paul were trying to tie the promise of eternal life into the honoring of, of, of fathers and mothers here, he would use the expression for eternal life, the Greek expression for eternal life. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He uses a term that means live long, not eternal life. And there's a big difference between living long and eternal life. Some of you have lived long, but you're you know, not, in this, not in this body. You're not getting eternal life. Beyond that, notice that the fulfillment of the promise comes on the earth. You see it? Verse three comes on the earth. It's not. It doesn't say it's coming in heaven. So the idea that this is somehow just a spiritual promise of life everlasting, I don't think works. I don't think it works. I think what Paul is doing, I think he's reminding the believers uh, of the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God that has been baked into the creation and in this wisdom of God baked into the creation clearly ties obedience and material blessing together. They're tied together. The fact that they don't operate perfectly, it's not a, it's not a mathematical equation. If I do this, I get this, right? That's the, that's the fallacy and nonsense of the prosperity movement. But it still runs under the Proverbs for sure. Sure. And I think the fact that it doesn't perfectly correlate in this life is the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes. It explains, how come it doesn't work every time? How is it that the righteous suffer? Well, How is it that the wicked prosper? Well, there is an answer to a certain extent, which is finally, um, this is hidden in God and it's beyond you. But here, back to the point, as parents. As parents, we are to encourage our children to understand the reality of the connection of obedience and blessing. There's a connection, there's a correlation between obedience and blessing. And how do we do that? How do we help our children, our believing children even, to understand the correlation between obedience and blessing? Well, we can do this by reading the Old Testament to them by reading the Old Testament to them and pointing out the connection between obedience and the way of blessing as we encounter it there in the Old Testament. And it's certainly replete. And I think we can further instruct them in this by graciously and humbly making observations about the events of life, both its failures and its successes. And that includes ours and others' And our children's, everywhere we look, everywhere we look, we see these kinds of connections. For example, how do we do this? Well, go to Proverbs 24. I'm just going to give you one illustration here. Proverbs 24. How do, I, how do I go about making these observations to my children in a humble way, in a gracious way, of the reality that obedience brings blessing. And disobedience brings cursing. Well, in in Proverbs chapter 24, beginning in verse 30 to the end of the chapter, I think it's a perfect one. Where here the writer says, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. This place is, is run down. He's walking by and he sees a piece of property that is completely run down. It is, it is lacking care from one end to the other. Verse 32, and I saw, I reflected upon it. I didn't just observe it, I, I stopped. And I, and I thought about this a little bit. What, what, what can I learn from walking by a ramshackle house? I looked and I received instruction. A little sleep. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come as a robber, in other words, unexpectedly upon you, and your wants like an armed man. It will overpower you. Can you learn something about obedience and blessing and disobedience and cursing from walking by a broken-down piece of property? Yeah, you absolutely can. You absolutely can and should. And as a father, as a mother, as a parent, we need to be alert. To, to observe what's going on, and then take the time to make application to our children. Hey, son, look, this is what happens when, 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 you, when you're not diligent, when, when you don't apply yourself to the task at hand. This is what you will reap. You'll reap a life that looks like this ramshackle house, all broken down. That's what's in store for you. Proverbs thirteen fifteen. it says, good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. The way of the treacherous is hard. Teach your children to make the connection, the correlation between obedience and blessing and disobedience and the cursings that come to it. And that leads us to our third approach. Our third approach. The third approach in teaching children to do right in a world that does wrong. And here it is. Verse 4. Show them the gospel by your example. Show them the gospel by your example. If we were to only make the connection, we would run a danger of moralism. Of only trying to treat surface behaviors. We need to We need to do that. we need to press through it and beyond it to the gospel itself. And that's what Paul is instructing here in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, we might Uh, Assume that Paul would just continue his instruction to the children and, and tell the children, don't provoke your parents. Be kind of, be logical, right? I mean, there's not a parent here who hasn't been provoked. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He ends his instruction to them with obedience and honor. And now he transitions, just like all the other relationships. First, the, the instruction goes to the, to the party that is, that is under the submission, and then he turns to the party in authority, and he begins to address them. And he addresses them in a, in a very strong way, very instructive way, just like he does fathers with, with wives, right? We saw that. We had 14 for the fathers, 7 for the women. Same for the children here. Children, you have one task. It's pretty simple. Fathers. Fathers. Why fathers? Notice he says, obey your parents, verse 1. Why does he turn to fathers, verse 4? Why does not he say, parents, do not provoke your children to anger? Well, I think there's a couple of possibilities here. One, I think strongly, and that is that the father bears the primary spiritual responsibility for his home. And so in addressing him, he is addressing his wife as well. They're one flesh and thus addressing the leadership of the home. I think that is not particularly arguable. It's also possible that fathers are more likely to provoke their children to anger than wives. Okay? That's my supposition. I don't have any strong like, oh, this verse says that and that verse says that. That's just my observation of life, my observation of life. In 1 Thess, uh, we'll go ahead and turn there. 1 Thess, uh, chapter 2, Paul references uh, a father's involvement with their children, and he uses it, interestingly, he uses it as a, as a metaphor uh, for his care for the Thessalonian believers. 1 Thess, chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Paul says, you're my witnesses. He's writing to these believers here in Thessalonica. You're my witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So... Paul appeals to common knowledge about a father's interaction with his children, and uses it as the metaphor to speak about his shepherding of this fledgling church in Thessalonica. But here, back in chapter six of Ephesians and verse four, we have a direct command to the fathers. And the direct command is that they demonstrate the gospel to their children and that they do so in a twofold way. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is a command to them to share the gospel with their children by example, first being avoid your own ungodly behavior. Do not provoke them to anger. That's just a that's a, that's a rubric, that's a place marker. for do not um, exhibit, or, or, or said another way, avoid your own ungodly examples and behavior. And then secondly, engage yourself in the shepherding of your children's hearts. So control yourself, and then shepherd them. This is how you bring the gospel to bear, dads. Don't provoke them. Don't provoke them. Again, the sister epistle, Colossians 3.21, Father, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Here, don't provoke them to anger. There, don't exasperate them so that they become discouraged, so that they lose heart. Okay, sounds simple enough. But let's ask the question. Dad, how do we provoke our children to anger? What do we do that provokes our children to anger or what do we do that exasperates them and, and discourages them, causes them to lose heart? What, what kinds of things might we do and, and perhaps do without even realizing it? Maybe because our father did it with us and so we just think it's normal and we pass the pathology on. Here's some ideas for you. Okay, simply ideas. I think we provoke our children to anger, Dad. And I I can say Mom. I'll say Dad, but it's Dad and Mom. When we operate by a double standard for sin in our home. When we operate by a double standard for sin in our home. In other words, we have one standard for ourselves and another for them. One for us, one for them, and it's not the same. It's not the same. Or... We're just inconsistent in addressing their sin. One week, it seems like dad's not all that exercised about this, and then two weeks later, a thermal nuclear device goes off. What in the world is going on? We need consistency. What's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. It's always wrong. It's always right. I'll live by it. You live by it. To fail to do that is to run the risk of exasperating them. It's to run the risk of making them angry. And this, by the way, dads, will confront us in our own laziness. It will confront us in our own laziness. In other words, you probably have to get up off the couch and do something. You know, the laser pointer is not sufficient. But hey, you're tired. I get it. it's easier to just let it go. Maybe maybe if I just ignore it, it'll go away. No, it won't go away. It won't go away. Actually, it'll compound. So we operate by a double standard. That's one way to anger. That's one way to provoke our children to anger. Another one is to exercise a critical spirit so that whatever our children do, it's not good enough. You know, good job, son, but. As soon as you say but and start to spill this stuff out, uh, the whole good job, son, part, like, disappears. You, you've vacated it of its value. Can't you just be happy to say, good job, son, period? But how many times do we find ourselves doing this? How many times? We have a critical spirit when we approach our children. Or another way is to give them no freedom to fail. To give them no freedom to fail. We, we constantly rescue them from their failures. Now, we've heard about this, right? We have the, we have the um, what do they call them? The bubble wrap moms, isn't that what they call them or something like that? Or, you know, they kind of hover over them, can't let Junior ever fail. You know, everybody gets a participation trophy kind of a mindset. It produces a generation of, what do we call them now? Snowflakes, I think, something like that. Right? We, we just, failure is so important in growth. We grow way more by our failures than our successes. And yet, as parents, often we're, we're, we're quick to enter in and relieve our children of their own failure. Let them fail. Let them fail. Be there to come along and help. Don't, you know, don't grind them with it. But let them fail. Let them fail. We... Provoke our children to anger when we mock their shortcomings and their failures. When we mock their shortcomings and their failures, we need to beware of the sarcastic tongue, for it can bite very deeply. It can bite very deeply. So don't mock them. We can provoke our children to anger or exasperate and discourage them by inappropriate teasing. Inappropriate teasing teasing. But every, every family has a measure of teasing, and I think it is healthy. We need to be able to laugh at ourselves because, hey, you know what? We're all, we all do really funny stuff. But teasing can quickly descend from good-natured to hurtful. And usually the last one to know when it has happened is the one doing the teasing. So just be careful. Beware. Teasing can go too far, and it can go too far pretty quick. Inappropriate teasing, another way. Oh, here's another one for you making unreasonable demands upon them in terms of their behavior or performance. Unreasonable demands in terms of their behavior or their performance. In other words, grow up, son, you're the man. Yes, Dad. I'm eight years old. Be a man, I was a man. Sometimes we fail to adequately teach or model the skill we demand. We fail to take the time to adequately teach it to them or or model it for them before we require it of them. Clean your room. Son, clean your room. We've never showed them how to clean a room. We've never really shown them how to do it. We've never taken the time to explain to them the benefits that come from having a clean room. It's just a command we bark out, clean your room. But what if we were to take the time to show them how to do it? Stuffing it in the closet is not the best approach, son. Why do we clean the room, Dad? Well, we clean it because we don't want to trip over stuff. We clean it because that way stuff doesn't get lost or or broken or, or stolen. We clean it so that we can readily access our toys and clothes and so forth when we need them or when we desire them. We, we, by, by keeping the room clean, then, then your possessions, son, are not so easily abused by, by our guests and visitors. They don't just come in and trash your stuff, it's put away. I mean, these are just like simple benefits of cleaning your room. But do we ever tell our children that or we just demand them to clean the room? Never explain it. Listen, Dad, if your workbench is constantly a disaster, or Mom, if your kitchen is a perpetual mess, then it rings kind of hollow to insist your children clean their rooms. If we can't do it, (laughs) if we haven't got it figured out yet, and yet to hold them to that standard is to exasperate them. It is to provoke them. Oh, another way it can happen is to make no provision for a child to appeal your decision. To make no provision for appeal. Hey, it's my word. Like the law of the Medes and the Persians. You know, once it's said, so let it be written, so let it be done. To lack an appeal process for a child is to frustrate them. Because guess what? You don't always have all the facts. You don't always make the right answer, the right decisions. There needs to be a way for them to respectfully come to you and say, Dad, could could I appeal this decision? Could could we just talk about it a little more? Maybe there's some things that maybe you weren't aware of. It's an attitude of humility. It's an attitude of, of obedience. It's just saying, hey, can we just talk a little more? I'll abide by your decision, but there may be some things you don't know. We provoke our children to anger by making comparisons to the other siblings or to their friends. Why can't you be more like your sister? She's so smart, she always gets A's in school, and look at you. Are you dumb? No, actually, I'm a boy. And the educational system of this country is built for girls. Sit still, color in the lines, be quiet, do what you're told, and you'll get an A. But I'm a boy. I like to break stuff. (laughs) We provoke our children to anger when we tie the closeness of our relationship to them to the level of their performance. Right? We're close to them when they're doing what they're supposed to do. When they fail, we withdraw. We withdraw. Or we make them afraid to come to us and admit their failures, to admit their sins or their spiritual doubts. There's no no safety in that. That leaves them no place to go. One more here, and then we're all sufficiently beat up. We provoke our children to anger when we tie our pride and our ego to their external performance as good Christian children. Be a good Christian child. It's church. Do not embarrass me. You will exasperate them with that approach. So show them the gospel by your example. Don't provoke them. Deal with your own sin. Second half of that is to nourish them. See it? Bring them up. In the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In contrast to provoking them to anger, the Christian father is to nurture them. Ectrepho, same word used over in verse twenty-nine, where it's, it says that um, the husband is to nourish, cherish his wife, like Christ does the church. Same same verb. So we nurture our children in the sphere and influence of the Lord. In other words, in the gospel. In the sphere and influence of the the Lord, which is another way to just say the gospel, the gospel. The process of doing that, notice it here, it's described by two words, discipline and instruction. The first word, discipline, pedia, Uh, it's it's related to uh, the word Paul uses over in Galatians uh, 3.25, where the um, pedagogos, which is the teacher or the tutor, okay, so it carries that idea of teaching, tutoring, instructing, is here in this word discipline. And the other word, instruction, uh, nousthesia, it's, it's also connected to the verb uh, noustheketo, nousthekeo, sorry, uh, which is translated as admonish. So it's the idea of admonishing or, or calling attention to something. And so we have these two words, and, and they're close in their meaning, but, but there is a difference, I think. And I think the difference is this, that discipline speaks of educational activity. Educational activity and disciplines and instruction emphasizes the verbal aspect of admonishment, reproof, and encouragement. In other words, we, there's a two-fold process. They're close, they're related, they overlap. But it is that the training of children in the things of the Lord has both an educational component, the idea of discipline, and it has as well an encouragement slash admonishment component where we deal with a particular behavior. The educational component, we would say, is Bible teaching. I could just say it that way. Teach your children the Bible. Teach your children the Bible. That's what it means to bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Teach them the Bible. But as well as that is you need to be prepared to reprove them or to admonish them when they don't. Prove them or admonish them or instruct them when they don't. Now, uh, again, let me just suggest to you a possible approach. Okay? So that's what the text says. Now let's just kind of talk about how, what's a possible approach to this. How could I, how could I do this? I think one way to approach the admonishment portion is to ask your children um, in the moment, what lie was sin telling you when you acted in such and such a way? What lie was your sin telling you at this moment when you did this? Okay, That takes it away from the behavior, just dealing with the behavior, and it takes it to the root underneath the behavior. There's a lie going on here. There's a lie going on, and what is it? What lie is your sin telling you when you act in such and such a way? In other words, you want to help your children to see the deceitfulness of sin. There is deceit going on here in your own heart, son. For example, Son, what lie was your sin telling you when you chose to look at pornography? Son, what lie was your sin telling you in that moment when you chose to look at pornography? And then listen to what they might say. And depending what they say, you can begin to coach them to see it. For example, son, Your sin was lying to you when it told you that a woman is not a person made in the image of God, but is a thing to be used. Your sin is lying to you in that. Your sin is lying to you in the moment when the temporal sexual thrill is of greater appeal to you than the fellowship of Christ. Your sin is lying to you. Your sin is lying to you, son, when, in, when it tells you that, that this is, there's only one time, this is just like one time. It only, one time. Because <laughs> what lies behind that is the sin that, that sin doesn't enslave. <laughs> and it does. It does, son. It's enslaving. Your sin lies to you when it tells you this image will not remain in your head Forever. Forever. Your sin is lying to you when it tells you that the future guilt is a fair trade for the temporal pleasure. Your sin is lying to you. Hebrews 11.25 calls it the passing pleasures of sin. That's what Moses turned from in Egypt. Uh, We should acknowledge there's pleasure in sin (laughs) for a season. But your sin is lying to you if it's telling you that that's a fair trade, that momentary pleasure for the long-term consequence. That brings the discussion back to the deceitful nature of sin and its appeal to the flesh. This is gospel work. And then we can follow up that line of questioning with, with a dialogue, something like this. So, you know, What would have been the believing response, son, to this particular temptation? What would have been a believing response? We, we see now, you see how sin has lied to you. But, but what would a believing response to be in, in, in light of the temptation? Well, it would be to recognize that sin is first and foremost against God, It's against God? Back to earlier comments about, as you read the Old Testament, um, go to Genesis 39. Where we have Joseph in Egypt, right? And his master's wife is continually trying to seduce him. She's hunting for him. Verse 9, where he says, There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph understands that, that that sin would be first and foremost against God. So that, that's, that's a believing response, is because when you begin to understand that, it will provide strength for you. And then flee, it's seduction, verse 12. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. He ran. Flee, youthful lust. <laughs> Run. Run away. Run away. Or Proverbs 9, Proverbs chapter 9, where we're instructed, son, to avoid the path of temptation. Avoid the path of temptation. Recognize that the temptress is hunting for you. You are the prey. 9.13, the woman of folly is boisterous. She's naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house, on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Here's her call. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. There is pleasure in sin for a season. That's her appeal. But he does not know that the dead are there, and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. It will kill you, son. That's a gospel response. This will kill me. So I must guard my eyes chapter five verses seven and nine. I must guard my eyes so that they don't go where they don't belong. Now then, my sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others, and your years to the cruel one, and strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. Guard your eyes. Do not go near it. But I can handle it, right? It's just a movie. It's not real. Oh, yeah, it's real. (laughs) The damage it does is real. And then a believing response, son, is to praise God for the gift of marital intimacy. It is a wonderful thing. It is a beautiful thing. It has been designed by God as a good gift to his children. But there's a time and a place to open the gift, and it's not now. It is not now. So recognize it's there. Recognize it's goodness And then strengthen yourself in the Lord and wait, and wait. And then get married so you don't burn. (laughs) Get married. This has been assuming your child's a believer. What if your child's not a believer? What if they're young, still not believers? Or what if they're older and still not believers? Then what? What if they don't have the resources of the indwelling spirit to combat sin? The approach is still the same. What Lie was your sin telling you in this moment, son. Because now it is to bring the law to bear, as it were, and to help them recognize that that sin entraps them. They are dead. They are helpless. And then point to the gospel as their only source of delivery. The technique is essentially the same in either case. It is sin that snares you. It is the gospel that will deliver you. And you must help them to see that. You must help them to see it. Now, this kind of soul work takes time. It takes time. And time is probably, gentlemen, our most precious commodity, is it not? It is probably our most precious commodity. And therefore, it is easier to focus on child rearing external behavior than to do the soul work necessary. The truth be told, in the heat of the moment, in our own sinful response to their sin, we just want it to stop. We just want it to stop. We're tired. We do not want to be inconvenienced. We do not want to be embarrassed. We do not want our lives to continually be made difficult by the sin of our children. And so to enter into the kind of soul work necessary means you got to drop whatever you're doing. And that requires self-control on our part. A bigger picture. We got to be get behind the behavior to the motive of the heart, as the ultimate focus of our training. Behind the behavior, to the motive of the heart, we've got to do heart surgery. What we're talking about is (laughs) disciple-making, really. We are talking about disciple-making. Applying the truth of the Word of God closely and carefully in the various situations of life. This is what disciple-making is. A couple of helpful books for both Carol and I as we were raising our children were as follows, one by Ted Tripp called Shepherding a Child's Heart. Shepherding a Child's Heart, we found it helpful. Another one was by a man by the name of Lou Priolo. He's gone to be with the Lord now, but he wrote a book called The Heart of Anger. The Heart of Anger. So we found those two books, Shepherding a Child's Heart and The Heart of Anger, to be helpful to us Twenty. Whatever many years ago it was. As our children grow, it should be our desire to see them mature Hmm? from a mere and raw obedience to a spirit led life in which they do what they do out of a love for Christ and a desire for his glory. That's what we want for ourselves, isn't that what we want for our children? And so we have to make the investment. And like any worthwhile investment, there is a sowing season and then a harvest. And sometimes there's a lengthy period of time between the sowing and the harvest. And that's when we weed and water. That's what raising children is all about. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.